Hey, it's Nelly. And it's Juno. And you're listening to Two Addies and Coffee, please. Where we share unfiltered life experiences as young, badass Asian American women with ADHD. Welcome to another episode of Two Addies and a Coffee, Please. Today, we're really excited to have Sabrina Wang, a coach, Reiki practitioner, and product manager at Headspace. So, hey, Sabrina, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Could you give a brief background on yourself for our listeners? Yeah, of course. Hi, Juno. Hi, Nelly. And hi, listeners of Two Addies Podcast. I'm so happy to be here today. So, my name is Sabrina. I was born and raised in China for 16 years, and I moved to LA when I was 16 to go to college. And I majored in accounting in college, came out of college, went into the big four accounting world. With that, I really didn't enjoy accounting. You know, no, I know it's a really noble profession, but I just found that it wasn't for me. So um, after that, I moved to the Bay Area, and I was just really fascinated by the tech scene. And I just said to myself, I really want to be in the action. I've always loved how software works. So I joined a startup in the sales team. And then an opportunity came up for me to join the product team. And um, since there, since then, I've been a product manager. And then uh, recently, about a year ago, I joined Headspace as a product manager. And uh, yeah, I'm also a coach. I have my own business. And I have been really, really interested in mental health, in figuring out my own spiritual journey. So yeah, that's about me. I think your background is super interesting because you have like the traditional big four background where everyone wants to work at a big four and then you kind of transitioned into like tech and also coaching and mental health. So I'd love to understand for our listeners who are considering like working a more traditional nine to five, working the big four. I know it's super stressful and I have friends who work there and they're super stressed all the time. So how do you deal with the mental health as well as working those long, rigorous hours? You know, I was so young back then when I was working that that type of nine to five. And sometimes it was nine to nine, right? As, as you mm. know, Nelly, if you had friends there during what we call busy season, it's it would be chill to have a 12 hour day. So I don't think I handled it the best way. And I think that's probably why I got so into mental health and was really figuring out myself. So what I was doing then, I was I still had a meditation practice. I had a fitness practice that was really important to me when I was working long hours. And now as a coach, I understand why, because actually when you work out, it releases your fight or flight or freeze response when you're under stress. And I was like, okay, that's why I needed it so much. Uh, so, but to be honest with you, I turned a lot to alcohol, to happy hours, to re- binge watching TV, and I really didn't understand what was going on. Um, I remember, you know, having my partner. I'm still, I was still with him uh, when when I was working at the Big Four. He was really supportive, but I almost couldn't show up fully as myself during dinners uh, when I was working those long hours. So, just looking back. I also understand that I had to go through those things and try some of the wrong tools to be able to understand kind of what are the right things for me. I definitely uh, resonate with the whole happy hour drinking because I think when you are 
working those grueling hours, you just want an escape. And alcohol is the easiest way for people to distract themselves from the life that they currently live. And I see a lot of friends and people, they turn to alcohol because it's so easy. And you have like beer on tap and there's happy hour and everything's sort of free and paid for. But I think in that sense, it makes you a little complacent to this life that you are living, even if you're unhappy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I and I think I used alcohol as a crutch for a really long time. And I, you know, sometimes you just do it exactly. It's it's easy. It's sometimes free with a company. It's cheaper than going to therapy and finding a coach and find and it's just so much easier. So I totally understand um, why people do it. Yeah. And it's crazy that like, somehow we find time for that. But I remember when I was like working grueling hours and things, I'll be like, oh, I don't have any time to work out. I don't have time to meditate. I don't have time for any of this. I think like recently I started working out in the mornings and that made me like so happy throughout the day and I was able to work faster. And I think like only very recently, me and Nelly were realizing also that like we can work more productively even maybe if we do have some kind of like self-care and breaks. Yeah, and I'm so happy to hear about your your morning practice. And I think it's so interesting because um it takes practice for us to figure out what works for us. And then with self-care routines, like working out when things that is actually good for us, it's not as consistent, which I mean that sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. With alcohol, you'll always get drunk. So <laughs> it, it almost takes much more cognitive work for us to find the things that is healthier for us. And it takes waking up early, putting on gym clothes and it, you know, it's just so much harder. So uh, self-care takes discipline. I don't know. I had trouble with this when I was like first during the pandemic. What advice do you have for like being able to slow down and like looking in, especially now people are always distracted and looking around and like, um, especially us, we have ADHD. <laughs> how do you, how do you like help guide them to be more like mindful? Yeah. I mean, the first thing is for you to want to be mindful, right? For there to be an intrinsic motivation on why you would want to slow down. So I think that's when uh, it seems like you all have had like really wonderful conversations with others. You've dived into your mental health. So both of you seem to be genuinely interested to seeing what that looks like in the future. So that's so important. You can't tell someone to slow down if they don't want to, and they don't believe that's going to help them. So after the first step of having that kind of intrinsic motivation, the second step is to becoming aware. There is always kind of like a stage of procession of when we get super wound up and overwhelmed. I would, If I was working with a client, I would work with them on figuring out the specific signs of when it's time for them to know, okay, this is a, getting a little bit over my threshold. So it might look like, hey, like when I'm taking a break today, I'm obsessively scrolling on social media and I wasn't even reading anything. I was just scrolling. So figuring out some of these behaviors. And then we would talk about some tools to implement in that moment. It's almost like you have a recipe nearby you that you can go to. So that might look like every time I go on social media, I go on a walk, something like that. And we have a commitment. And in coaching, it's like keeping the client accountable. So we would check in and make sure that we're implementing this new habit. On a small level, every time you notice that you're getting too distracted, too wild, wound up, sometimes the easiest thing is to sit down and allow yourself to be busy, to be overwhelmed, to be wound up and just take a few breaths. Sometimes we want to run away from that. We think that's bad, but we're just human. This is part of the human experience and it's absolutely okay. And feeling okay about it and accepting that is so powerful without even introducing some of the tools. 
I think that self-awareness and introspection and reflection is definitely so much work and it really requires you to take a moment and stop, look inwards and be proactive to do that hard work. So when you started your mental health journey and like starting from zero, how did you kind of understand that mental health was important to you coming from China, your background with the stigma of mental health? How was that like for you growing up? It was tough. I I knew I always struggled. I felt super alone growing up. I didn't have the best relationship with my parents. They were either absent or they just really didn't understand me. So my my mom is a narcissist. She has narcissistic behaviors and I've done a lot of healing to have come into term with, terms with that and we have a good foundation of a relationship right now. But it was really tough for me. I was labeled as being overly sensitive, dramatic. I recently was reading a childhood journal and I read an entry from when I was nine years old saying that I didn't want to be in the world anymore. I didn't want to exist if it would mean no hurt for my family. So I always struggled and it's all it's almost like it was too painful to be in that place, you know, and but at the same time, I really loved the world. I was this happy kid. I was always smiling and like wanting to ex- experience the world. So holding both of those things really kind of tore at me. Um, and I remember opening up to my parents when probably I was in middle school or early high school, opening up to them about my kind of suicidal thoughts and really, really struggling. It was struck off. My mom thought, oh, you're you're being too sensitive. Let me take you to a mental health professional just to prove that there's nothing wrong with you. So that was kind of the the first kind of attitude that I received opening up to people who took care of me. So they did take me to a mental health professional in China. That was a terrible experience. It was like this, I still remember super clearly this like dark hallway filled with people. I go into this lady's office and the door was open and my parents were in there and she just asked me some questions and I think the conversation lasted like 15 minutes. And then in front of me, she said to my parents, yeah, she's fine. She's just being rebellious. Yeah, that was all all that I got from being in China, my first experience in mental health. And I took that with me for years and years. I thought there was something wrong with me to be sensitive, to react in a certain way, to react to a verbal abuse in a certain way. I internalized all of that. Uh, when I came to the U.S., it was really hard to find my footing in the first couple years. What happened, this is a long story, but this is like the full context of how, honestly, how I found mental health help in the U.S. is in, I think, sophomore year or junior year of college, junior year of college, I got diagnosed with thyroid cancer and it was completely asymptomatic. My mom actually, she was like, we should scan your thyroid. Um, So yeah, my mom was like, let's do an ultrasound of your thyroid just in case, but she's a bit of a hypochondriac. We did it and we found a nodule and I'm completely fine. It was like a really small surgery that I had to do, but I was completely freaked out. I had my mother in the U.S. living with me. We were already having kind of a clashing relationship. I had this cancer diagnosis. I had friends who did not know how to understand me and it wasn't their fault, right? Because we were all like so young. So I reached out to the USC Health Center and I said, hey, I just got a cancer diagnosis. I don't know what to do. Can you like help? And they were like, oh, shit, this sounds serious. Like, let's get you in this week. So I met this wonderful, wonderful therapist, this guy, and he helped me through it. 
and it was only talk therapy at the time, but that was my first experience having someone say, uh, acknowledge me, listen to me, and just hold that space for me because I really didn't have anyone in my world at that time who could do that for me. Uh, and after that, I was like, okay, this is amazing. But things started spinning. I got into meditation. That's when I first started using Headspace. I realized that if I didn't have my mental strength, I didn't have anything. And after my thyroid surgery, after everything has healed, I realized if I had my mental strength, I had everything because my life actually started getting better after being able to take myself through that obstacle. And I don't know where my first therapist at in this in the world, but I will always be grateful for him. That was a really inspiring story and introduction to mental health. <laughs> Thank you. Sometimes I feel like I'm watching a TV show when I'm thinking about my life. One thing I'm curious about, if your relationship with your parents now, has that ever changed? Or how do they understand like what you're doing now with coaching a Reiki? You know, it, it was it was it's a whole transformation. So I I would really love them growing up. Like they were my world. They were my heroes. And I used to think that the worst thing that would ever happen to me is, is if we were separated or if they died, like that would be the worst ever thing. And I, I just love them so much. And then, you know, going into teenage years, going to college, I realized I was so unhappy because of how they spoke to me, how they treated me. Um, and actually after, you know, my first few therapy experiences, I came across kind of the narcissistic family dynamic and I read about it. Um, and it took me like two years to acknowledge Knowledge that that's who they are. I first didn't want to put blame on them. Still, I would. It was easier for me to think that I was a bad daughter. Um, so I actually then read some books, seeked out a therapist who specialized in narcissistic family dynamics, and I worked with her for a bit. And it was so frustrating. Um, I was angry. I was grieving. You know, and as an adult looking back at all the things that I wish I would have had with my parents but didn't, and so that. You know, our relationship was bad because I was going through that process with a therapist and realizing all the things that I didn't see before. It was really chaotic then for a few years. And after I worked on myself, spiritually especially, and became really full in myself, I took a step back. And the turning point for me was realizing why they were the way they were, how they were raised. And maybe there was actually like brain chemistry limitation to how they were to me. Um, I've come to a, a point of conclusion of realizing that they're just human and they were raised by their parents who knew less about how to take care of their children. And I really believe that they tried their best with the brain that they was they were given, with the kind of the personality they were given. And, you know, the physical space helps so much. They are still in China. I'm in the U.S. And I genuinely believe we have a better relationship when we're slightly apart. Still want a relationship with them. Actually, like a lot of uh, children of these families are, are better off not having a relationship with their parents. But I found I'm happy to have be able to find a, a common ground. And now a quick side story is my mom actually got diagnosed with lung cancer two, oh. three years ago. And She's okay now. She's healthy, but that changed mm -hmm. her a lot. And it made her realize that she was wrong to some extent, which is very, very, very hard for a narcissist. And she now realized if she didn't improve, she would lose her relationship with me. So I see a huge change in how she interacts with me. And 
we wouldn't be here today without her trying mm-hmm. at least a little bit because what it was before I was I would not be able to be myself and be relationship a good relationship with them because they completely wanted a different daughter that mm-hmm. wasn't me. They've come to understand what I what I do. They've come to realize, wow, like you're actually, you know, you know mm-hmm. what you're doing cuz all of the stories that they've told me before is you don't know what you're doing and I've proven myself again and again and again with leaving accounting. They were freaked out, you know, going into product management. They were freaked out. They were like that. <laughs> and then now starting my own business, they actually surprised me. They were like, we support you. Mm-hmm. And I, we think that you got this this time. So, uh, but a part of it is also me knowing that I no longer need their validation. I would appreciate the support that feels good, but I know that I tried my best to be the best daughter possible. I know I tried my best in our relationship and I know the life that I deserve and I know the family I want to create. So I figured all of this out for myself and then I can be stronger in my boundaries mm-hmm. and my relationship with them. I love hearing your growth with the whole entire journey and your parents' growth. Uh, a lot of my friends, actually, I feel like they still hold a lot of resentment towards their parents and their childhood still dictates the actions and choices they make today, even though they say, oh, my parents, I'm like cut off from them, but they're still trying to strive to be in that career, that path or those decisions that would make their parents proud or validate them to kind of like show them off. But at the same time, I think holding all of that resentment in isn't necessarily good for your own personal growth. Yeah, it's hard. It it literally physically hurts because, uh, you know, I've held that for such a long time and it's it's really, really hard. And, you know, I, I, also, I also understand that that's like a, that's a stage you must go through to be able to arrive at a better resolution. You just have to go through that. You have to hold the resentment and then see what's next. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I will say I really do believe like my situation is probably an anomaly. It's very, very rare for the you know Chinese parents to be able to grow that much in their old age. So I I feel lucky to have had that and to have whatever we have today. I think that's so amazing that you were able to come somewhere where you were able to unravel. That was such a long time and throughout your entire childhood all the way to coming to the U.S. And you had all of these like external messages telling you that it was your fault. Um, and the fact that you were able to like go from that to this like amazing coach who can help other people out of it is so, so inspiring. So, wow. You're, you're really, really strong. <laughs> And I can't imagine like going through that whole cancer scare and the diagnosis and the surgery mm-hmm. all without previous support of mental health. So I can't imagine like it's really scary. I think when you think that you are going to die or like all of these things, you're not thinking clearly, you're thinking emotionally and without the right tool sets and um, experiences from previous ways of dealing with these hardships and difficult situations, I can imagine like that would have been super rough. And how would you navigate out of that? Besides having a therapist, was there anything else that really helped you process all these emotions? Again, I was so young back then, right? So I, I, what I did, like, 
honest to God, was I actually, I used a lot of partying and like applying to social clubs. I did not want to stop school. I was super stubborn. That was my way of escaping. Escapism has always been my pattern that I was only able to sort of had a uh, breakthrough with in the recent years. So I had my therapist, but I still had to escape because, because as Nelly said, the emotional part was too much for me to mm. handle. I really would have loved to have the connection to spirituality like I, like I have right now. I think that would have helped me a lot, a lot. For example, my practices in Reiki and my studies in energy work, I think that would have calmed me a lot. But I also, I wouldn't have it any other way. I think I had to have gone through that. For anyone going through the same situation, definitely a therapist. I am a coach now. I have to come to know that there are coaches that would spe- specialize in these situations with health and kind of like health crisis. I would also recommend support. Honestly, you just have to have an army around you, but also understand that it's okay to pick the wrong tools. It's okay to be overwhelmed and just let yourself be. I think that's the most important thing and not have this high expectation of yourself to beat it, to like beat it emotionally or whatever. Just recognize it's a really shitty time. <laughs> I also wanted to add on something from Junior. You said that my story is really inspiring. I really so grateful for you to reflect back onto that. But I also just want to share to anyone who's listening that it's I it's not that my life is like perfect now. I still have struggles. I don't want people to think that, you know, it's almost like I have this glamorous life. I'm like happy all the time. I'm like so super spiritual. It's not like that. It's it's just that I have become stronger in some of these struggles and I'm I'm faster to getting out of it. I know how to get myself out of it. So healing is so worth it, but it's going to be a spiral. It's going to be taking a few steps ahead and coming back. And that's no reason to be discouraged from that because what's laying ahead is going to be beyond your wildest dreams, beyond your wildest self-concept. So I just wanted to put it out there like mm-hmm. my life isn't perfect for sure. My My strength isn't perfect, of course. Yeah, I I think it's funny that like we started this podcast and I think a lot of our listeners sometimes think that, oh, they like they got their mental health down and they overcame their ADHD. We actually just recorded another one showing that we're still struggling a lot. (laughs) (laughs) We just went through a few crises. But I think, yeah, you were talking about like escapism before. I know like before I moved back to New York, right before the pandemic hit, I was living day to day every single day. I was like drinking and smoking weed. And like every time I felt like a little bit of like shame or anything, I would immediately like go to substances and go out and party or something. Yeah. And thank you for sharing that. Like it would be so inspiring for people to hear, you know, having you turn into escapism and substances and finding kind of this clarity in therapy. And and that's why this kind of support is so great, right? Because I almost feel like before therapy, before kind of coaching mental health work, we just live in this fog and then Mm -hmm. sometimes things will poke at us and we're like, that's my fault. Like... I don't know what's going on and you know everything is uncomfortable but when you clear that fog away you can be like oh that's that's the story that for example my family gave me uh I don't care if people don't like me because I have this path cleared up in front of me so and I think some people are born in this world needing to clear this fog and they want to and they're interested in it But some people aren't, and that's totally okay too. For me, I think for us, it's just like, how can you not? It's so interesting. I want to know how the brain works. (laughs) 
I love what you said about how other people give you those stories and you have to clear away that fog. I think that really hit home because for me, all my life, I was told, you're you're so moody, you're so irritable. Mm -hmm. Like, why can't you just sit still? And I would pull all-nighters. And obviously, mm -hmm. if you're not sleeping, you're <laughs> irritable and you're moody. And then I would turn to like caffeine to help me like wake up. So then of course, I would be extra hyper. But all of these different things because of my environment and the choices I was making in terms of like eating junk food all the time, not sleeping, like really pushing myself to meet these goals that I think everyone around me who are intelligent, but they have great executive functioning can do. And I was always beating myself up saying, why can't I do this? I'm just lazy. And that's the story that everyone else told me that you're lazy, like you could do so much, you have so much potential, but you're not using it. And for a long time, I was thinking to myself that, oh, if I just worked harder, I could do this if I just put in more time, if I just put in more effort. So I would like stay up later and later and later. And like my health really deteriorated because of that. But I think going to therapy and working through all of these things, I'm reading books. I'm just like, no, I'm not lazy. This is, I pull all nighters. I do all this because I want to put in this work, but your brain just won't let you. And that's the clear difference between people who like choose not to do something versus they choose to do something, but they can't. And feeling trapped in your own mind or body is something super isolating and hard to really tell people, especially when they kind of discredit or invalidate your feelings like, oh, everyone procrastinates. And then I thought to myself for such a long time, like, oh, everyone feels this way. They're just dealing with it so much better than I am. And there's something wrong with me that I need to find another strategy or another tool or another planner that might help me like get some order into my life so I think redefining your own story and trying to accept that and not accept what other people are telling you who you are yeah that's so beautiful that you did that because you did something that's really hard for people to do taking this example outside of self right like if you had a friend like your best friend and stranger comes along and be like and say to you your best friend is lazy you'll be like fuck you like how do you who, who you don't know her right you would defend your best friend without thinking too much but with us we we internalize it we're like it's something wrong with with me but you actually figured it out you were like wait I'm not lazy. It's actually, this is how my brain works. And I'm going to figure out how it works. And I'm going to take ownership of this is what I'm going to do to like, perform better in this world. And and that's just so amazing, because you come you you step outside of it, and you started questioning what other people are saying about you. And I wish more people can do that, because we let ourselves get caught strapped down and limiting our dreams and our aspirations because of what people said about us. And that can all be just background noise, or it can be the main narrator. It's our choice. And I, I was getting so excited when you were saying that because it's just like you guys, right? You guys talk, you, you two talk about ADHD. There is some kind of mental struggle there, but you still have an amazing podcast. You are functionally adults in a society. You, I, I don't know where, what you do for work, do you know, but when I met Nelly, she's a product manager at this great company. Just because we struggle sometimes doesn't mean that we can't do amazing shit in the world. Like we can still be amazing, have amazing friends, have a great life and have the struggle. You can have it all. For our listeners who don't know what Reiki is, can you give a little background on what Reiki is, how you use it, um, and what are some of the benefits of Reiki? Yeah, so Reiki is a form of energy healing that originated in Japan, and it really 
as my Reiki teacher would say, and how I've understood it as well, it's universal love. It's this overwhelming sense of love that engulfs you and makes you feel protected and held. And because it's energy healing, it does have benefits on the physical, emotional, and spiritual level. So it's kind of like a massage. If you get one treatment, it is something that takes effect within the next few days. And then if you do want to upkeep the effects, you will have to get Reiki often just to keep the energy up because we do stuff in our daily lives that keeps our energy down. At Stanford Hospital, actually, they have like these chair Reiki people going to hospitals and like giving people 15 minutes of Reiki. So it's becoming more and more recognized, even though our science still can't really measure what's going on. Um, I've seen it really take the stress off of people I was giving Reiki to. And then like on a spiritual level, it makes people who are intuitive more intuitive. And I say this with my own personal experience. So all types of amazing benefits and Reiki always knows exactly what that person needs. And that will be what they receive and get treatment on. And it can also be done remotely. People always ask, how how the hell can it be done remotely? It's like something that I can't logically explain, but you know how we enter a Zoom room together, you're on a meeting, you can just tell when someone's pissed, when someone's distracted, when someone is like, you can vibe with this person, you're sensing other people's energy. So this is just more of a directed way, using the practitioner's intention to provide a type of healing. So I've done it across the phone, across Zoom many, many times, and it's always worked. I think that's really interesting because you talk about intuition and those are things that we can't technically measure with a ruler or something that's like a scale. But I definitely do feel like going onto a Zoom meeting and you feel this aura like, Oh, bad vibes. And yeah. I think it's kind of like those things that you can't really quantify, but you know, that when you enter a conversation or a room or a place, it drains your energy or give you more energy. I know you talked about like your spiritual practice and some of the other tools that you've been using. You tend to recommend specific things based on your clients and what is right for them. Would you want to share a little bit about what you've discovered and are effective for you? What that journey was like, trying the tools, maybe they were wrong, how it felt like when they didn't work out and how you went from that to like your routine now? That's such a good question. I'll try my best to kind of share what happened with me. So as I said, I started using Headspace. Headspace was my first introduction to meditation back then. I was obsessed with it as an app and I'm glad I got to work here. Um, but I was on and off, like most people, I was doing it on and off for a few years. So in, in that sense, I didn't really find like a good routine, a good motivation and a good way for it, it to work for me. And I understand why now, because it takes years for your brain kind of chemistry to change, to adapt to mindfulness. So what really got me into meditation, like meditating more, I think it was a particularly low time with my job. And I really got into this kind of like more woo type of meditation which is like meditating about your spirit guide going to like this beautiful palace and it really was calming for me because I have such a vivid imagination and when I go through guided meditations like this it just gave me this loving feeling and just calming feeling that was more than the traditional like just watch your breathing kind of thing so I talk about this with not just clients, but also friends and coworkers who don't get into meditation. I think, again, you first have to have a problem to solve and you have to think that the meditation is a potential solution. So 
for people who are like mentally stable, they may not find meditation appealing because they don't really have a problem to solve, right? So I completely understand that. And then further along, there are different types of meditation. So, so, so many types of meditations for people to try. And I've tried some that works and tried some that doesn't work. And sometimes my favorite meditations will not work right now. So it's, again, going back to the self-care thing, sometimes it'll feel good, sometimes it doesn't. That's why it's it's harder to self-care because you have to pick and choose. Um, so, you know, ever since I got into meditation, maybe like three, four years ago, I've been meditating consistently every day. My brain just like, it's different now. Like I, I just feel a much bigger difference in how aware I am, not just in perceiving myself, but in perceiving other people. And I realize that if I don't meditate, my mind is foggier. So I had done this evaluation and have decided for myself one day that meditation is going to be a priority even before working out. Mm -hmm. So I just put my foot down and I know that, you know, because I've been to a really dark place with a mind and I know I would rather have that first before even physical health, at least for me. So I made that choice. Um, but one day when I was living in SF, I don't even remember how Reiki just like popped into my, I, I maybe it's a website, maybe it's Instagram, I don't know. And I just got super attached to it. I looked it up and I was like, I really want to try this. I looked up this lady, I went to her office and she did Reiki for me and I was mind blown. I was like, what is this? She told me things about my body and my life that she cannot have known. And I felt like leaving her office, I was in this like warm bubble. Mm -hmm. I didn't have my normal anxiety and overactive mind. I was just anxiety free and myself for like almost a week. Yeah. And then I'm like, now I know what it feels like to be so in touch with myself and I would do anything I want. So Without a doubt, I signed up for Reiki classes and then it continued to blow my mind. And um, I don't know, I was just thinking about this thought. I've always been into Harry Potter and like magical stuff. And this is <laughs> the magic that I've found in our world that I love and uh, really connects me and makes me feel like there is something deeper, more complicated than us to understand. And I think it's so interesting because like, I totally understand people who only believe in things that can be measured. But if you think about it, we still know so little about our world, mm. our like 3D, 4D, 5D world. We just simply don't know. We're like humans have existed for such a short time in the universe. So personally, I'm not the one to, to kind of doubt experiential things mm. just because they can't be measured. Yeah, I think I spent a while denying everything that <laughs> could not be measured. There were very few times where I was like, oh. There's definitely something here that is special about my experience that I can't really measure, but I didn't know what it is. Like one time I was meditating, I think it was like 5 a.m., 6 a.m. and the sun was rising and I was feeling like so miserable. It was right before a big deadline and I was not sleeping. My whole life was work and it felt like, what is the point of me living? And it was very dramatic, but at the time, that's how I felt. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll meditate because I just felt like I needed to escape. And I think... There was one meditation called Say Yes to Life. And I just felt so amazing and like beautiful at the end. And I was like, how did that like how do I replicate this? But I wasn't able to. And I did the same meditation afterwards and it didn't have that effect. So it was really encouraging for me to hear from you that you can have these powerful experiences and it'll go on and off. But you just have to be persistent. Yes. Um, 
that meditation experience is so cool because look at what you did. You created something with just your brain. Like I love coaching because so many people come in and my, me, myself too, going to my coach, we think the reality that we're creating, sometimes we're creating with our negative thoughts, with stories people tell us. We create our realities that way just habitually and unconsciously. But what if we can create a reality based on possibility, based on what doesn't make sense that we didn't do before, that we believe 100% we can do? And I really think that I created my business in coaching because I like really, really made my brain go in that way. Instead of going like, I can't coach people, I can't make money, like, who am I to coach people? I can easily go down that route and not take any action. But with the help of my coach, I was able to go into the other direction and say, I really believe in myself. You know, I really I want to help people and I'm going to believe in myself every day as much as I can. So isn't that crazy? We just put so little power into our brain, but our brain is so powerful. It can literally create lives, <laughs> the lives wow. that we want. <laughs> I think the last time I thought about spirituality or things that I don't understand was probably last year. Um, and this was back when I was in China because my grandpa passed away. My family is super Buddhist and they are really spiritual. And my grandma, when she was trying to cope with this, she was saying things like, I sense him. He's still here. And I was raised like non-religiously, no spirituality, anything. But I think going to China and trying to learn about their traditions and culture and Buddhism, that's when I started considering all of these possibilities. Like maybe he's here right now. And I was never someone who believed in that. I don't know if I still do, but I think it is something interesting because we don't understand a lot of things in this world. We don't understand like the afterlife or our mind or things that are so interrelated. And there are these like coincidences that you see on like the news or like on social media. And you're like, how does that happen? It can't just be pure coincidence or maybe it is, but there are these cases where it might be something that we don't understand that's there. Yeah. And sometimes we don't have to understand almost like what is the truth of how things works and spirits works. You, We just have to understand the world in a way that works best for us. So like for your grandma, it probably worked best for her to be able to sense your grandpa. And maybe he was there, he wasn't there. Like, who knows? We don't know. And I resonate with that story so much because uh, I was really close with my grandma and she passed away when I was in college. And I kind of like ran away from that for a couple of years. And I was like, that, that didn't happen. I'm just going to push it down. But then after I got into my spiritual journey, my relationship with her, my guilt for her was one of the first that I needed to heal because I carried that so heavily with me. And now I feel I sense her presence a lot, in whatever way that means to me, right? It could mean that I'm choosing to carry her values with me in my family, in my cooking, in how I'm interacting with friends. And I wear her ring often and that reminds me of her strengths. And I sometimes have these moments that I just know deeply that her spirit is so proud of me right now and I'm really doing things that she wished for me and she wished for herself and her family so that could be psychology that could be memory that could be spirit I don't know what that is but it works for me when you were talking I was like getting slightly emotional because I was like, like I was like yeah <laughs> oh you too Nelly. <laughs> well yeah because I think 
like I was really close with my grandpa and mm. when he passed away those feelings of like guilt if I can't see him the last time I would ever get to see him yeah that's so hard and you know the flip side of guilt is how much you loved him and the flip side of my guilt from my grandma is just evidence to how much love we had together and like I totally understand I wasn't there when she passed and I always blame myself for missing those last however much time but I have come to the conclusion that because of how much she loved me I, she wouldn't care she would just think about the life that the memories that we had and I, I'm sure that our grandparents all feel the same way about us so my dad like passed away when I was 10, mm. but I didn't know that he passed away for like five or six years. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So we didn't have a funeral. We didn't have like any acknowledgement. This sounds so weird, but I like realized last year in therapy that he was my dad and like understanding that that story was so hard for him. I think like hearing you talking about like it was filled with regret in the beginning, but even after she passed away, her spirit was like proud of you. And like you were able to turn that into a positive experience. That was very encouraging to me and it gives me hope that I could like heal. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's so beautiful how much we still love the people who are no longer with us and we carry that. And, you know, Juno, with, with the beautiful and like hard thing you shared about your dad, I, I really hope for that for you too. And maybe it's not healing, maybe it's acceptance. And it, there's another thing that popped into my head that one of my spiritual teachers talked about that. I've personally found a lot of comfort in is that humans are sometimes not always good. They're, you know, we have bad behaviors, we've hurt people, but spirits are always good. So in my kind of world, I believe my grandma's peer, of course, she's made mistakes. Of course, she's, she wasn't perfect, but the way that she is right now, she is so perfect. She's so loving and she is just that pure love. And that, I don't know, that just gives me comfort. And that is what I think about when I relate to her these days. And that is what I try to bring in to my relationship with her now, because I still want to have a relationship with her, but I'm relating to the best part of her. And yeah, I just, that just popped into my mind. <laughs> yeah, I think that's beautiful. Oh my God, I don't think we expected to cry this episode. <laughs> but I think just like hearing your experience, it really resonates with me and Juno and probably a lot of our listeners. And I think I'm like super, every, every time I hear a story, I'm like super empathetic and I feel like I can feel everything, but I try to like not show it or whatever. But then if someone says one thing, I'm like tears just everywhere. Thank you. Thank you both for sharing a little bit about <laughs> like, I feel it in my heart. What a heartwarming conversation. Really nice. Hmm. This is proof that your spirit and your energy is like so powerful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and now I can feel your energy. Amazing. Hey, it works, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we talked about this too, because I'm just so surprised that we all relate in that way with, with someone we lost in our lives where we feel a tremendous amount of sadness with, because um, I personally don't get to relate to many people like that right now. And so yeah, I just want to thank you both too for sharing and having this space because I think especially in Asian families, we don't really talk about death. We don't really talk about 
any discomfort really, and especially death. But I really had to figure this out with my grandma on my own. And I think um, I truly feel like, I don't know, I'm closer with her now and the image of her than I was before. So I just really glad that I was able to talk about her too. I think having that empathy for other people is super important because now with like things happening in the world with people passing away from coronavirus and all of us being in quarantine for so long, we lose some of that empathy when we go to work because people try to make it seem like everything is fine. We're just doing this work. We're here to produce content or produce products. We're not here to hear about your feelings or your emotions, but I think it's all part of who we are. So we can't necessarily just shove that part of ourselves away. And I love what you said about like feeling your feelings and kind of being okay with all of that. Yeah, thank you. And I am someone who has a lot of feelings. I'm like a highly sensitive person. I didn't know that was a thing that was new. I feel so many emotions. That's part of why that I had to escape when I was younger, when no one taught me tools because it was just too much to take. And I love conversations like this podcast for us to talk about the hard things because sometimes, like you said, Nelly, we go to work and people are like, that's all you do. But we bring all of ourselves to work. We get triggered when the coworker speaks to us in a way that triggers us. Our coworker gets triggered. It's just we bring our emotions everywhere. And how can we just do the work when we're interacting always on an energetic level, on a emotional level, on whatever level with everyone around us? I think we're so used to like shaming people for showing their emotions and being vulnerable. And People say like, you don't have to be strong. You can be sad or you can acknowledge your obstacles and struggles. But some people might say like, oh, but then I'm accepting defeat. That this is like a weaker version of myself. And I can achieve much higher if I ignore them and don't let them get in my way. For people who I guess think that their emotions slow down productivity or chasing your dreams. Do you have any insight on like people can be open and vulnerable and talk about this, but still also be very productive or get a lot of things done. So what you're saying is we often equal emotions to weakness. And how do we talk to people who are thinking, I can go further if I don't kind of Mm -hmm. look at my emotions. I mean, in my experience, that's wrong. Because when I wasn't looking at my emotions, I was sure doing well in school and stuff, but I was struggling as a whole human being. As soon as I paid attention to my emotions, I got into product management. I, you know, I have a great relationship with the love of my life. I started my own business and I did not dream to have my own business at the age that I'm in right now. And when you look at people who are truly successful and they're successful, like being happy and doing what they're, you know, truly in the world to do, they must have looked at their emotions. So there's another type of success, which is maybe I just make hella money and I just maybe do like investment banking or something and just put the hours in and make a lot of money. Are they happy? Do they know themselves? Are they having good relationships? Is their health good? So then it becomes to let's take a step back and define success. And I, I think for me and the people, you know, the clients who are attracted to me and also like the conversations that we're having today, success means being comfortable with yourself and, you know, being proud of yourself and 
really being able to have this mindset, no matter what job you do, no matter how much money you make, isn't that more priceless than a million dollars? Because you can be so emotionally poor at a million dollars and worried about people are going to steal your money, people are going to steal your position, which life is more appealing to you? And if you choose to be more wealthy in your emotions, then you have to face all the emotions and face all the discomfort. You are not going to be able to get to that place with pushing things away. Mm. Then it goes down to if you think emotion is weakness, then your definition of success is different than we when we think about emotions and mental health as wealth. Those are completely different people and different goals. I love what you said about how success we deem as like monetary wealth or these specific positions at these companies are prestigious. And I used to think about why is this seen as success? Because they're working like 80 hours and making a lot of money, but they're so unhappy. I have never met a happy investment banker ever, ever. (laughs) But that's seen as the goal. And when I was in college, everyone wanted to like go to consulting banking. And I was always thinking, why? I don't want to do that. But at the same time, I was doing that and I didn't want to, but it seemed like there was no other option. So redefining your own version of success is super important to kind of be in touch with your own values and live a life that is aligned with who you are and where you want to be. Exactly, exactly. And I'd like to believe that there are happy (laughs) iBankers out there and consultants (laughs) who have done the work and decided that this fast paced environment with this wealth and like being able to solve problems, that's where they thrive at. And I'm so happy for them. But some people, I think most people actually go down this route because other people's expectations, you know, things that you can see money, you can like easily Google top salaries. And, you know, you think money, it buys, gives you happiness. And unfortunately, people get stuck in this mindset for years, decades, like some people never get out of it. And they, they're wondering, hey, like, why, you know, why am I feeling so terrible in a pandemic? Because almost I feel like the pandemic exposes our mind in a way, some people weren't ready to look at the reality and help themselves through the struggle. Um, just because of how long they've overlooked their emotional regulation and emotional awareness. And that's okay. But I think for those of us who have been working on our minds for a long time, you build this resilience in life's obstacles in every single way. And in that way, you know, you're just going to be more resistant to struggles and you're going to be more self-sufficient. Yeah, I definitely agree that that's going to change your happiness the most. I was watching this course, Science of Wellbeing um, by Yale on Coursera, and I forgot what the exact number was, but they were showing the trade-off or like how much your happiness increases as you make more money. Um, mm-hmm. So like as soon as you have enough to have comfortable living the conditions, after that, it didn't really increase your happiness. And the salary where it dropped off was so much lower than I expected. Um, what people thought was like so skewed. It was like much higher Mm. as they went up. When you saw like the researchers, everyone had like a very, very different impression of what things made them happy and what things didn't make them happy. And it shows like how disconnected we are from ourselves and like our values and needs and what we need to be happy and satisfied with our lives. This makes me think of like fast and slow thinking. Um, When we jump to the conclusion that money makes us happy, we're using like fast thinking, like of course money, but Actually, in order for us to 
discover what makes us happy requires slow thinking, more mental energy, more time, and more self-reflection to do that. And sometimes we just don't. We just jump straight to, again, like other people's stories, other people's expectations, and that easy thing to grab and thinking that it makes us happy. I really would recommend people to focus on their mind first because that is really the key to your living the life on your own terms to your full potential. Awesome. Thank you, Sabrina. This will encourage so many of our listeners. I feel so encouraged and inspired right now. (laughs) (laughs) And if any of our listeners want to reach out to Sabrina, we'll link all of her Instagram and website for her coaching business down below in the description. Thank you for listening to another episode of Two Addies and a Coffee, Please.